Yes. Uh, yeah, so now I'm down in the shrine of DDP. I'm working my fingers to the bone trying to get rid of all this crap. Yes, the big credit card is history, but be careful of the Kimberly poster, okay? I don't pay you to mess up my stuff. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Nate, I gotta tell you, I'm glad I'm not doing this thing alone, because I honestly liked this week's episode. I I thought it was good. Am I wrong? I I mean, this was no evil Knievel. Like, it wasn't an all-time great episode, but it was certainly a Robbie Knievel. You know, it, it... it wasn't quite the the goat, but it it didn't uh, embarrass the legacy of the goat either. So, uh, yeah, we we might be crazy, but uh, again, if if you and I are crazy, then the listeners are crazy as well because they're joining us again for another installment of the universe's favorite cross generational, interracial pop culture pro wrestling show dedicated to the genius of one Vincent James Russo. And Nate, it's not just us. Who knows? Maybe you and I are both insane. Thankfully, we have a test subject here as well who always goes through these things with us. And this week, we are being joined by writer-comedian Patrick Monahan. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's been, uh, it was a, a fun afternoon uh, watching this. It was really, uh, really something. Now, Patrick, I know that you have watched wrestling. You do watch wrestling. You are a wrestling fan, so this isn't completely alien to you. But have you ever watched WCW? I, I I know you probably like most people weren't watching the year two thousand. But were you ever a WCW fan? I um was not. I kind of got into WWF at the time, obviously uh, during the Monday Night Wars era. You know, maybe like ninety six. I want to say ninety seven, and watched until I want to say two thousand one or so. Um, I was aware of WCW. I knew who kind of the big stars were because they sort of you know, transcend paying attention week to week. Um, I also probably have more, uh, at least more passing familiarity with some of the minor people because I, I really liked the, uh, the WCW NWO, um, Nintendo 64 games. So I had those just because the, the engine was so good. So, uh, it didn't matter that I didn't know who any of the people were, you know, or it, it was just more about the game being fun to play. And then obviously that license transferred over to uh, WWF and then it was, you know, so, well, that was better for me because I think I could actually play the people I know or knew rather. But um, yeah, so I, I was familiar vaguely, but I was not prepared. I know that the whole industry was kind of spiraling out of control, uh, at least in terms of the storylines and stuff. But this was this was really uh, I clearly did not know you know what to expect because I thought it was going to be kind of a standard thing. But this was really pretty wild, uh, <laughs> I got to say. So during the whole Monday Night War, you were never tempted once to sort of peer over the fence. <laughs> 
You know, I, not, I don't really remember that I was. It's kind of weird. I, you would think that I would be, you know, maybe switching back and forth. I know a lot of people used to do that. Um, you know, obviously there were times when they would reference each other and that sort of thing. But uh, it, it, for whatever reason, I had no interest. I don't, I don't know what it was. I guess I was just sort of enthralled with the, you know, the, the various personalities that I saw um, on WWF. There wasn't really a concern or a need. And the reality is, I mean, without DVR and stuff, so you you had to pick one. You know, you couldn't really, uh, um, you know, watch another one later uh, that I know of anyway. I don't know if they ever aired. Maybe they aired the, uh, the you know, Nitro and stuff on TNT because they obviously they're owned by the same company. Maybe they had a little more leeway. But, uh, yeah, it was just, a, you know, I, I, I don't really remember any even intellectual curiosity. I mean, I, I guess someone like Goldberg maybe was maybe the closest I came to having interest, but then... You know, you get like the David Arquette stuff and all that, and, and it was just like you know, not a very appealing thing uh, conceptually to me. So I guess maybe that's part of it. Hey, you, you got to respect the man for for being loyal. That is a a rare commodity in this day and age. So I, <laughs> although I I was a a stalwart WCW fan, I cannot uh, disrespect your allegiance, brother. Yeah, and I don't even know what I really can't remember what started it either. To be honest, um, it's just a. You know, it was that, it was definitely after like Austin three sixteen became a thing. I know it was after that, so it was after mm. that King of the Ring or whatever that was. Um, but I don't know when exactly or what the impetus was to make me start. Um, but yes, yeah, probably it was probably I was just flipping the channels and there was some insane flashy thing happening with like a strip tease or something, and I was like, "What is this?" And then that's you know, I think that's seems to have been based on what we saw, what I saw today. Uh, that seems to have been part of their business model uh, on both ends. So it wouldn't be <laughs> shocking. Patrick, we now know where you were in the year 2000. Nate, let's go ahead and take a look at where the culture at large was the day of this Nitro in the year 2000. Nate, I just realized that it's been a long time since we took a look at the movie charts. It's It's been so much music lately. Yeah, we we, we got to get back into the cinema. You know, we, we cannot... Uh, I believe it it, it was uh, a great philosopher. It might have been uh, Aristotle that said, man cannot live by Carlos Santana alone. So we, we've got to... Uh, <laughs> See what what other forms of art are uh, popping uh, at this time in the year 2000. Well, this seemed like as good a week as any because opening this weekend was actually the movie that would end up being the highest grossing film of the year 2000, Mission Impossible 2. Ooh. Ugh. I don't think I can do it. I mean, it'll be difficult. This is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. That's a dud. That was a dud. It was, but everyone fucking saw it. It had that Limp Biscuit theme song. <laughs> and as odd as it is, I would say that probably the Mission Impossible franchise is probably pound for pound one of the best ones going. This is really the only, you know, sort of blight on the entire franchise, but it was such a kind of a dead spot that even though it was the highest grossing film of the year, it would take six years before they'd make another one. It says a lot about the culture that that was the top grossing movie, and the Limp Biscuit did the, the theme song. <laughs> I actually had forgotten about that. I, I actually I, wa- I I rewatched Mission Impossible two uh, on Netflix or one of the streaming things maybe within the past six months, and just because I was curious because I couldn't really remember. I remember the only thing I remember is the scene where he's like wearing the mask, pretending to be like the henchman or something, and they, he, he like tricks yeah. the bad guy into killing the number two guy or something like that. And uh, then he pulls the mask off, like in slow mo, as he walks away. That was like the only memorable thing about the movie. 
that and they end up like sword fighting with uh motorcycles or something insane on the beach i don't know it was not yeah yeah they like joust it was not uh it was not good i will say that um but yeah three i think three is great i think the rest of them have all been super fun but it's because they kind of rebranded a little bit as like full-on just like okay there's like a little bit of spy intrigue but it's really just kind of an action movie as opposed to like the first one which is kind of a much more uh intricately plotted mm-hmm. type thing um which some people like i don't i don't really feel the urge to watch it again but um you know, I'll, I'll watch any of the other ones whenever they're on if I happen to be flipping through. So now, refresh my memory, Brian, because uh, you know I've watched. I believe I've watched either all or part of all of the entries in the Mission Impossible series. But was two? Is that the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman, or is that a different one? I'm thinking of. No, that's the third one. This one is okay. Doug Ray Scott is the villain. Ah. Who, funny enough, turned down the role of Wolverine so that he could do this movie. Oh well, thank him, thank him for that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Okay. So now, now, yeah. the The first Mission Impossible, I kind of dug. This one, I didn't like at all. The third one, uh, as Pat said, it was uh, maybe my favorite of the series. And then, the, like the later ones, the more uh, modern uh, Mission Impossibles, they've they've been fun. They've been uh, they've been entertaining little romps with your boy Tom Cruise. So yeah, I would say, as for a a series this long running. Uh, it's it's probably one of my favorites, but uh, yeah, this was not. That does beg the question: How is this uh, the the highest grossing movie of the year? It, it was a big sequel, and I, I looked at it. And it was the highest grossing movie of the year, but it only made like five hundred million dollars worldwide. Which now, I mean, like the Avengers movies and things like this make like a billion and things like that. So it was a slightly different movie landscape, but. It still was huge for the time, and I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan. I actually could go on all day about it, but unfortunately, we do have to talk about this episode of Nitro. So let's go ahead and do that. You've got to help me, Steiner and Nash. You know what they'll do to me? You know, Russo, I can't think of one person whose ass I want to kick worse than yours. We start with a recap of last week's Thunder, which saw Kevin Nash win the world title. The show proper begins with Ric Flair arriving in a limo with his family. He tells his wife to stay in the car with Reed. As soon as Flair turns his back, R&B Security captures Beth and Reed and brings them into the arena. Wait a second! It's R&B Security! What's going on? And there's Russo! How shitty is Ric Flair's (laughs) hearing, I guess, that he is maybe 10 feet away from this when they kidnap his family? Uh, that was that was one thing, Brian, man. And I, I don't think I've ever done this in the history of Keeper 2000. But early on, before we even get to Tony Schiavone's introduction, I'm going to throw a flag on the play. Because one of my favorite moments in this entire episode happens when Ric Flair is telling Beth, you know, to stay in the car and Rick walks away. Beth is like still trying to argue with Nature Boy. And we get little Reed popping out of the car yelling at his mother and pointing his finger in her face. Hey, dad said get in the car. And I I don't want to go all, you know, comic view, black people do this and white people do this. But that that moment right there, just I'm a grown ass man, Brian. And just seeing this little kid address his mother in that fashion, I, I clutched my pearls on that one. <laughs> it's I, I love I love that. It's so ridiculous. But I, I, I love that's one of my favorite like late. 90s like over the top wrestling tropes is like just people just committing crimes as part of the storyline <laughs> where it's like okay uh this is beyond the pale here like the police should be showing up at some point this is kidnapping and false imprisonment like you can't do this you know i don't care what the you know i, I just i think it's yeah and 
I think what I think I remember. I think what Reed said was he knows what he's doing or something like yes. that, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, Mom. Get in the car. <laughs> and Beth got in the car. What's so funny is there's at least half a dozen unprosecuted felonies on this show, <laughs> but a dude gets arrested for violating a restraining order. Yep, <laughs> that's the thing that, that the police have their eye on. Well, that's the that's the genius of it because well, I mean. Genius might not be the right word. I think we'll let's maybe dial that one back. I'll save I'll save that word for when it's when it's you know uh, needed. But uh, you know you, when you when you have everything all in on these authority figure storylines, you have to make sure the only people the rules are actually enforced against are the good guys because otherwise it's you know uh, obviously if if things were being handled fairly, it would be a very different situation. So yeah, he we get to go see him. I love the DDP and the Yankees hat and the Sopranos cut off T shirt. Thought that was amazing. Um, <laughs> I love, he's, I mean, he, he's one of my favorites because he, he used to just be like a, he was like the manager and then like he just got into it like super late, right? Wasn't that his story, like his backstory? Yeah. And that, that is so fun because he's just like a dude who loves the business and just had it, whatever it is, because he's not particularly, uh, you know, charismatic or, or not, 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 he is charismatic, but he's not particularly uh, like impressive physically or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So people just love the guy for whatever reason. So it's very easy to just turn these do these dumb storylines that are just people being mean to him. It's not even anything really serious, but people just get, you get a ton of heat for that just because um, they want to see him, you know, just have a good time basically. And, and Patrick, you, you mentioned the cops there. It, it, it does strain credibility that the millionaires are the only people the cops are enforcing laws against. That's quite the opposite of how the real world actually is. <laughs> that, that is correct. That is true. Tony welcomes us to Salt Lake City, Utah for tonight's Nitro. The Wolfpack music hits, and out comes new WCW world champion Kevin Nash. Nash isn't alone, though, as he's followed by Medeja Shakira and the U.S. champion Scott Steiner. Nash starts by running down all the headaches that the new blood have caused the millionaires lately. Luger's got a destroyed face. Diamond Dallas Page is personal, and his professional life is being controlled by Eric Bischoff. Hulk's got a retirement ma- match at the Great American Bash. You got Vampiro. Wanting to set Sting on fire in 13 days. Nash says the reason the millionaires are legends is because they've seen it all, done it all, and have been through it all. And this prompts Ric Flair to make his entrance. Rick says that 14 days ago his career was sky high, but it went down due to an unknown medical reason. Flair tells David to look around because his dad is in the building. Flair promises that David's wrestling career will come to a quiet end at the pay-per-view. Nash then says that Flair never lost the world title and just gives him the belt. There you go. Flair is now a 16-time world champion. (laughs) He would hold that record for a a decade and a half. (laughs) Jarrett comes out and compares the scene in the ring to the view. Sick burn, bro. Jarrett says that per Russo, Kevin Nash will face Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott in a handicap match tonight. Jarrett warns Scott Steiner that if he interferes, he and Nash will be cleaning toilets. <laughs> Steiner then tells Jarrett to come into the ring, bend over, and kiss his ass. Jarrett tells Flair that he will defend the title against him in the main event. Flair then repeats Steiner's request to kiss his ass. Flair turns down the match and says that he's off tonight, which brings out Vince Russo. Russo says that he warned Flair that if he stepped one foot into his house, Flair would wish he had a brain aneurysm. Russo then calls out David Flair, who brings out Ric Flair's wife, Beth, and son, Reed. 
This prompts the millionaires to charge the heels, clearing out security as Russo and company flee. So there we go. We've set the stage. We know the big deal here. This might have been the perfect Kevin Nash title reign. He only had to hold it for a few days. Then he just <laughs> gave it over without jobbing to anybody. But overall, it got all it got all the ducks in a row. Yeah, I really enjoyed this opening segment. You know, when you had, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. You got five really strong talkers, you know, on the mic with, uh, you got Flair, Steiner, and Nash. David Flair one. never picked up a mic. Yeah, David Flair didn't pick up a mic. They didn't let Reed talk again. Uh, and then on the other side, you know, you had Russo and Jarrett, who can both, you know, do some good work on the microphone. I, I enjoyed the intensity and I think we got to give a shout out to the unsung heroes of some of these segments, R&B security, because one of my favorite moments is at the very end when the uh, millionaires go charging up the ramp and you got this wave of uh, mooks or, or goombas or the putty patrol or, you know, the foot clan, whatever you want to call them, you know, these disposable henchmen rushing at the heroes and they're all taking these bumps off of this limited offense. And I think one guy runs out and flair chops them and, and he does like a, Back bump slash flip midair. Like, you know, the, these guys are really good. These uh, nameless random security dudes. But uh, overall... Well, you say nameless. Did you see who was playing R&B tonight? I didn't. I, I just saw a bunch of big dudes. Who who were, uh, who were they? It was Mike Sanders, Elix Skipper, and Alan Funk. Oh, so okay, that makes a little bit more sense, though. Cause, it's all power plant guys. Yeah, okay. Because, yeah. yeah, Elix Skipper runs out at the very end, takes a chopping flare, and, like, does almost a, a quarter flip. And I was like, that's a, that guy's earning his money. So, yeah, that makes a little bit more sense now. <laughs> I, lo- I, love, I love the – I mean, I was what I was shocked by first, and I think this is probably just they've changed the way they, they book everything now, or at least they've kind of t- – they, I can't believe how much they gave away, like in terms of stuff that they could, you know, save for another event. You know, like, like I mean, I know that a Nash Flair match is probably not going to be a five star match, but the fact that they don't even have, like, even that make that the main event of the night, or you know, it's just bizarre to me. Unless, you know, maybe Nash uh, blew out his quad again, picking up the microphone or something. I mean, you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> but. It's just like the fact that he just gave the belt over like that. You, I don't think you'd ever see that happen now. You know, I mean, because there's always the focus on, you know, where's the money and the money would be in some kind of main, something, you know, some kind of main event. I don't know. I, I just that was jarring to me. And can we just get can I just get a little bit of backstory on I tried to kind of look it up because I didn't really understand. Like the new blood is Russo and Bischoff and then a bunch of what guys who weren't getting pushed enough. Like the storylines that they're all like overlooked guys, and then obviously the their nemeses are the millionaires who are all like the big famous, like the most famous guys. Is that is that basically it? That's pretty much it. Even though you've got uh, some some random allegiances on either side, like Chronic is hooked okay. up with the millionaires for some damn reason, and like Bam Bam Bigelow is with the New Blood. So there's a couple of outliers on either side, but for the most part, yeah, it's the the guys who haven't been pushed to who've been held back, and then your superstars. I mean, honestly, given the way that I understand the way WCW backstage politics works, the alignment should be reversed, and the new blood should probably be the faces, realistically, because guys like Hogan were just running roughshod over everybody anyway, right? So uh, it must have been weird to watch if you were, like, a smart, you know, person, because you're like, oh, yeah, I actually like watching these guys who are not, you know, who I like, but we're not, uh, you know, I don't want to watch 55-year-old men (laughs) shove each other again for an hour, you know? Yeah, then you see stuff like, Kidman and Hogan, and it's it's really tough to cheer for Hogan in that. Just physically, it's tough to cheer for Hogan there. Yeah, and and the thing with the uh, you know even as a fan of WCW back in two thousand, watching this particular angle, 
it was so disjointed because there were guys I liked on both sides. Like I was a fan of Goldberg. I was a fan of Sting, a fan of Ric Flair. But then on the New Bloods, you know, I like Booker T. I like, you know, the Filthy Animals. I like uh, Billy Kidman. So there, there there was a really disjointed way of starting this angle, and, and, and I think it's it's continued on. So uh, it, it, I don't blame you one bit as somebody looking with fresh eyes and outside eyes like, what the hell is going on here with the makeup of these two factions? Yeah, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's totally just a function of me not having the backstory because I'm sure if you parachute somebody into WWE from around the same time, you know, with, like, the corporate ministry, which was one of, like, the big heel factions, which was, like, the McMahons plus the Undertaker, yeah. that probably looked completely insane and arbitrary to anybody who didn't have the backstory. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. I just I, I couldn't really... I was trying to track who was good and who was bad, and it's like it's weird that all of the old guard, you know, guys who are 40s and 50s are all the good guys. But I understand now why, because they basically just soak up all the adulation. And I think Vince Russo has a real—it's um, like his kink to get booed by people and have people hate him because he still does it now. So you know, he clearly is working out that whatever sexual thing he has going on, uh, you know, on, on the road <laughs> during these things. <laughs> Outside, Vampiro pulls up to the arena in a gasoline truck. <laughs> how, how the fuck do you even get a gasoline truck? Yeah. All everything else aside, how would you procure this vehicle? That, yeah, that, that, that's this is my second flag on the play of the night, Brian. Man, because a it's very difficult for you to procure a gasoline tanker. B I don't think Vampiro has a CDL, and three. Or C, uh, I guess I can go three because it's Russo booking, uh, AB3. Three, uh, Vampiro, uh, and this is no slight to our brothers and sisters north of the border, but Vampiro's not American. So I'm sure there'd be some type of red tape or paperwork involved for him to get such a thing, not being a citizen. So uh, I'm wondering how he was able to acquire uh, such a a big prop, a big item here uh, this week. This is also one of my favorite... uh things that that went on in the in, the, in those days uh where there are just like a big plot point is just somebody pulling up in a car i know they still do it now <laughs> but this there were like five of them tonight around on this episode it was crazy there was you know i mean well, you can talk about more of them later but like that's like just the way the way to move the story forward is just cut to the parking lot and somebody's either walking into the building or pulling up in a car because apparently nobody comes to work on time <laughs> this gasoline truck will play in later but not as large as, like, was it just me? Did you guys feel that the there was not really a payoff for this gasoline truck? No, it wasn't like the beer truck or the milk truck, from which I, I'm guessing they probably were, you know, there was some inspiration there probably with the Stone Cold stuff, you know, where you, some, you want someone to get blasted in the ring or whatever. But, I mean, you, you re, I mean, what's he going to do, kill him, you know, or blow? they're going to blow up the truck? I mean, they, they set themselves up for not being able to pay it off just from a logic perspective, you know. Um as big as their budget might have been, I'm sure they don't have the budget to blow up a tanker truck in a parking lot of a major arena. <laughs> well, funny you should say that. <laughs> Vince Russo had a payoff in mind that he did not get to do. <laughs> Vince Russo wanted to light this arena on fire. <laughs> that was his idea. Well, the, uh, what, fi- what the, f- the, the fire department didn't go for that? That seems hard to believe. He thought he'd be able to, like, soak a pillar outside the building in gasoline and set it on fire but put it out in time <laughs> and was amazed when they told wow. him he couldn't do it 
L- listen, bro. I've got an idea to close the show. We're going to light this pillow on fire. Then Donnie Osmond and Carl Malone are going to come out, bro. It's going to be fantastic. We'll be on entertainment tonight. It's going to be it's going to be bonkers. Backstage, Russo and Jarrett threaten Flair's family as Rick frantically searches the building for them. It is opening match time, and for once, it's not a garbage weapons match. It's the Disco Inferno versus Lieutenant Loco in a lumberjack match. Chavo runs into the ring and hits a dive over the top rope. He follows up with a T-bone suplex, and Disco bails to the outside. Chavo then hits a dive over the top onto the animals. The Misfits toss Disco into the ring. Chavo then dropkicks Disco onto the rampway, allowing the MIA to beat up on him. Back in the ring... Rey Mysterio Jr. takes out Chavo and sets up for a Bronco Buster. However, he turns his attention to ma- he turns his attention to Major Guns outside the ring and signals for her to come into the ring while doing a blowjob motion. <laughs> Guns accepts the request and Mysterio unbuckles his pants, preparing to I guess get a beach in front of thirty thousand people in Salt Lake City. Gun teases Ray. She even rips her top off before just kicking him straight in the nuts. Disco re-enters the ring and is quickly taken out by Loco's Tornado DDT for the win. After the match, Nitro Girl Tigress tends to Ray Jr. on the rampway. Madden reveals that she is actually Ray's girlfriend. Tigress attacks guns in the ring, and a cat fight ensues. Thankfully, this was not a shitty hardcore match with Terry Funk. That would be, you know, later. But Daphne is cruiserweight champion, and Rey Mysterio is trying to get blowjobs in the middle of the ring. I, I can tell by the, the sound of your voice, Brian, you weren't overly thrilled with the segment, and, and I can see why. But but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, play devil's advocate here and, and uh, tell you why I like this opening segment. A, it wasn't our traditional terrible hardcore match, but B... You had some guys that were that were really trying to work hard, you know, starting with uh, Chavo, who I feel is somebody that often gets a bad rap. And, and a lot of that is due to a he's been saddled with some pretty bad gimmicks over the years. But then B, Chavo is a really good wrestler, but he's not even close to being the best wrestler in his own family. You know, when you talk about Eddie over here, though, so it's like. Peyton Manning is is the greatest, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and you got Eli over here with two Super Bowl rings, looking like chopped liver. And I feel like Chavo was the Eli Manning of professional wrestling. Uh, so it was good to see Chavo get some shine here. Uh, it was good to see the Filthy Animals uh, coming out, looking like they were about to drop the hottest track in the year two thousand. Uh, but you talk about the the sexism, and that's something we've talked about for weeks here with Vince Russo and the way he books shows. I didn't mind this particular angle because there's something to be said for Major Guns, and, and follow me on this, Brian. If she is going to be objectified, okay. if she's going to be objectified, she was objectified as part of a plan that she concocted. You know what I mean? This wasn't just, hey, let's stay at her ass for, for you know, three, 30 seconds. You know, this was Major Guns saying, okay, Ray, you're acting like a pervert, so I'm going to take your own pervertedness and turn it against you and haunt you by your own petard. And, and I, so I... I at least liked the base level of giving her something more to do than just be body parts. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, I just wanted to make a, a note about. I, I guess I missed the uh, the blowjob motion because I, I must have looked away for a second <laughs> because all of a sudden he's he's in the ring 
and she's kind of just doing her little like you know sexy move, and then he's unbuckling his pants, and I was like, what in? Because <laughs> you know, because that's like, I mean, there was all kind. I mean, I know the thing. Like I said, things just kind of kept amping each other up with like the over the top like sexual stuff, you know, and and like the bra and panties matches and all that. But I mean, th- that was just like, especially because I thought. WCW was on some level supposed to be like the more family friendly one, at least because didn't they used to record at Disney? Yeah, they weren't doing angles like this at uh, at Disney. I mean, that, uh, you know, and they're and they're in Utah, so who knows what kind of laws they probably broke doing that? Right. Um, you know, I'm, you know, that's sodomy, right? So that would be no good if they, she actually did it. It would be, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, the thing that I mean, again, not knowing who these factions are was kind of confusing to me. I mean, I recognized half the people probably, um, but. Uh, the thing that's that stuck out to me, and I, I maybe this is just memory, memory, or maybe not, but the songs in WCW, the entrance music is atrocious. Like they all, they all sound like they all sound like middies. Well, to be fair, the MIA's theme song that you heard on the network was not the MIA's actual theme song. Okay, so what did the- some of these are replaced? Yeah, it's like stuff that WCW want didn't want to pay for. The Filthy Animals though did come out to their actual music. Okay. Okay, yeah, because MIA sounded like a like a doo-wop song, and I was really confused. Like I couldn't tell <laughs> like what was going on. Uh, okay, well then that, that that makes that makes more sense. So I mean, I, I don't really watch old. The, the, I don't watch like the legacy Raws either. Maybe some of those are different too, based on licensing stuff. I mean, so that that could just be. Um, but yeah, I was gonna say like the the, the gap in talent between WWF's in-house music people and WCW's, if those were the actual songs, would be. Shocking, considering that they should be able to compete, you know, financially at least. But yeah, if, anyway. I'm re- if I'm remembering right, Brian, the Misfits song in WCW wasn't it kind of like a, a rip-off version of a, a war? What is it good for? Oh, and 100. percent And they, there's no way they're going to be paying Lowrider for rights to this song. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, do they have, so because the, none of them had lyrics either? Is that and is that again a function of? Or do they typically not have lyrics? Uh, it's all over the place. Yeah. Like there's this boy band faction called Three Count. And their music's not on there. Later, Sting, his music is not heard because he was coming out to a Metallica track at the time. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people kind of get their stuff. Um, Hogan was coming out to Jimi Hendrix, and yeah. so it's replaced with his American Made theme. So, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of people in WCW that – in WCW, they didn't buy the rights to these songs because they never thought they'd be putting them out on home video. And WWE has no interest in paying for anything that goes on the network. Especially when it's WCW as one last attempt to stick it to uh, <laughs> to Turner and them. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Backstage, Paul Polchuk asks Vampiro why he brought a gas truck to a wrestling show. Vampiro says the sinners will burn in hell, and he promises a fire tonight. Chronic then interrupts, beating up Horace Hogan. Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak then run in and do a number on Chronic. God, Russo can't even book an interview segment without having a run-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was wild to me, because I, I don't know the timeline of who was with, with co- which company at what time. But some of those people, like... You know, I know Palumbo and, and Stasiak for sure. They they came over to they were in WWE at some point, but they were also like it's it's just weird to watch how where they are in the pecking order in different in the different promotions at different times because you know uh, like Stasiak especially was basically like a jobber within like six months in, in WWE WWF, but it seemed like he was somebody to be feared uh, at least in WCW. So was, that was interesting to me. Well, one thing that get stuck out to me, Brian Man, and it's. Uh becoming a, a a little bit of a a an irritant to me is the the disrespect the the disregard that these workers seem to have for one uh 
Pamela Paul should because Vampiro continues the Kevin Nash gimmick, and I think Shane Douglas has done it, uh, did it uh, last time with the uh, who are you thing. And it's like, I don't know everybody at my job, but like if I hear somebody say somebody's name at work and then I'm like, hey, there's Rick. I'm like, okay. I don't walk up to Rick two seconds later. Like, who are you? You know, that, that's, that's not professional. So I, I was a little bit disappointed with Vamp right here. Well, do you ever forcibly turn them around and check out their ass before they walk out of the room? Because that's also something they do to Paula. <laughs> I can't say I've done that before. Back in the arena, Miss Hancock comes to the ring. Hancock says the crowd must think she's a real stick in the mud, but she wants to let the guys know she can let her hair down and have a good time. She then does exactly that and starts dancing, the same thing she does every week. The announcers sound like three divorced dads at a strip club as they describe her body. <laughs> we are in for another Miss Hancock treat. Oh, double snoochie boochie, Tony. I know you love this, Shivani. Oh, I do. Chris Candido then interrupts the dance party. Backstage, David Flair is shown heading to the ring. Candido says the women in WCW don't know anything about the business. Candido is about to attack Hancock, but David Flair runs down. Candido does a number on David until Ric Flair runs down so that he can beat up on David. R&B security runs in, allowing David to flee with Ms. Hancock. The announcers say this won't sit well with David's fiancée, Daphne. Why is why are we letting Chris Candido get like the fucking upper hand on David Flair here? And why is Candido the guy coming down for this segment to begin with without Tammy? Yeah, there there was a couple things here, Brian. First, the Candido involvement, but also the Ric Flair element of this segment. And it's something we've talked about before on the show, but also something that I think I felt back in two thousand, which is. This entire story of Ric Flair and his son David and the family involvement, I understand what Vince Russo wants me to feel, but because of the story he's written, I don't feel that way. Like, I, I've never felt this entire time like Ric Flair, like I should be cheering Ric Flair beating up on his son and, and wanting to end his son's career before it's ever really gotten started. Like, I love Ric Flair, but in this particular angle like rick flair doesn't come across as a good dude to me like man this is this is your son rick flair be a father to your son yeah i think i mean rick flair yeah he's at his best when you when you hate him i mean now he's not really anything you know he's not he his alignment doesn't matter you know but it's weird that i mean that was weird for me to watch because he's always i mean you know from my canonical remembering him he's always been like the you know just the top heel guy and the thing that was weird to me was how they were mixing it was like mixing the the you know like the 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 top stuff on the card, which is the Flair storyline, with like lower mid card stuff, right? I mean, it was very strange that he would you would deign to have Ric Flair involved in this thing by virtue of obviously his son coming out. Um, but also, like, isn't saving a woman from getting beaten up after? Okay, so, so I just want to track the who's <laughs> who's booing who's booing and cheering what here. So. So she comes out for no reason and says, I'm going to take off my clothes, and everyone starts cheering. And then the guys stop, and Candido stops her, and that's booing, because obviously they want to see her, uh, you know, continue taking off her clothes. And then Flair, David Flair, who was a bad guy at this point, comes out to stop the beating and got like a mixed reaction, kind of. And then Ric Flair comes out to beat up the guy who just saved the woman from getting beaten up by, by the other guy who stopped the striptease. <laughs> it's just it's just a really confusing like it doesn't give you i mean as a as an audience member yeah i think you're right i i didn't know who you know 
there should be a very clear line drawn what, what side you're supposed to be on. And this was just kind of like whiplash going back and forth. Like, wait, what? Okay, so who – all right, who do I like here? What's going on? You know, I'm glad that the guy didn't – I mean, the fact that he stopped – I mean, it's one thing to stop the striptease. The fact that he was apparently going to – you know, he grabbed her by the hair and was going to beat her up for some reason was very strange. Um, unless they have history that I don't know about. So – what? And that's the thing. You just said all these things that confused you. You were supposed to be cute. You were supposed to be confused by this segment, but for none of the reasons you just described, David and David and uh, Stacy Keebler, Miss Hancock, have never had any history on the show. Now, in real life, they were dating actually backstage, and Vince Russo decided to just go ahead and make that the actual storyline, ignoring the fact that David Flair is engaged on this. <laughs> TV show <laughs> to a different character. We're going to move past that. But also, uh, Nate, must, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you see any reason why we had to pull the trigger on this this week and we couldn't have waited until after David has his match with Rick? Absolutely not. Like, there, there was no reason to go to this this early because A, it confused the main storyline, which is Rick versus David, father versus son, but B, it gives it would have given David something to do after the feud with his father because and my memory might be uh, cloudy here but if I'm remembering right like this was the kind of the beginning to the decline for David like after the feud with Rick I don't remember anything else standing out about his WCW career so maybe doing the Stacy Keebler thing uh, after instead of trying to jumpstart it early would have been at least something halfway memorable for a uh, young David. And I, I just want to ask a question: Is is Miss Hancock, who's Stacy Keebler, who later dated George Clooney, which is a hilarious thing? Um, uh, <laughs> is she a is she a manager? Is she a wrestler? Like, what is her? Is she aligned with anybody, or is she just a lady in a sexy librarian outfit? Like, there, it didn't seem like there was any there was no storyline purpose. It was just, hey, I'm going to take my clothes off. At least, like, Major Guns is like part of a stable, you know, or like a manager, valet type type thing so was was miss hancock with anybody and shouldn't that person have come out to to beat up uh candido yeah the premise is after the breakup between her and lenny and Lodi, she's scouting for talent but we never actually see her scout for talent she just comes out and occasionally she'll dance on top of the announcer's desk for tony Schiavone and mark madden uh but for the most part she's supposedly scouting for talent but we never get any real follow-up on what talent she's actually scouting. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Outside, Kimberly Page arrives at the arena surrounded by paparazzi. And I gotta say, with such a rabid press following, you think she would have been able to find work after this company went out of business. I will, I will, uh, I, I, no, no, we, we've got to stop right here, Brian, man, because we've got, you know, every house has house rules, and then there's, there's the quorum that must be had, and, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to put my foot down right now here on the satellite of hate. There will be no slander of, uh, the, the lovely and talented Miss Kimberly Page, who is quickly becoming my favorite thing on these shows week to week, Brian, man. Oh, no, she was incredible on this episode. Uh, spoiler for my silver lining at the end of the episode, she was an all star on this episode. So was she actually is she actually married to DDP or was that is that I couldn't really suss that out I, I don't know the story of these people nope that that is legit at the time they were uh, married until I believe 2006 okay <laughs> so this leads to a pre-tape from the Page household 
Kim is on the phone with Eric Bischoff as a woman is packing up DDP's stuff. It is implied that Bischoff is jerking off during this phone call, but Kimberly pays him no mind. Anyway, Eric, so what am I wearing right now? Just a t-shirt and jeans. Oh, thank you. Not that one. That's got a picture of me in it. I gotta say it again. I thought Kimberly was so great here. Her comedic timing was great. It helped that they had so many great props in the Page household to work with, like DDP's oversized MasterCard. I thought this was just so – this was such a funny string of vignettes. I really dug this. You know, the, the just the little things between her and the the lady that was uh, packing up the stuff. You know, you had the box labeled crap, and uh, you know, you had the big oversized Mastercard, the big trophy, and then uh, I, th- I think at one point the moving lady goes to take down a picture, and she's like, "Hey, leave that one up. There's a picture of me in there." And it's like, yeah, she's she's really strong with these little beats here uh, in these segments. Back in the arena, Donnie Osmond and Carl Malone are shown at ringside. Nate, Donnie Osmond doesn't miss uh, he doesn't miss a nitro. He was at the last Salt Lake show, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm no expert on Salt Lake City, uh, but from all I can gather through pop culture, uh, Donnie Osmond may as well be the mayor of, of Salt Lake City. Uh, so uh, it, it was it was no <laughs> surprise to see him. Yeah, you had the mayor and the mailman, uh, both uh, WCW Hall of Famer Carl Malone in the house as well. I would like to see Stockton in there. He could do like a cheap shot on somebody, you know, like his classic <laughs> NBA style. <laughs> <laughs> then out came the artist formerly known as Booker T. Booker is no more. He is now G.I. Bro. So his firing lasted exactly 24 hours before he was re-signed. Patrick, were you aware of this time period in Booker Huffman's career? <laughs> I was extremely not aware, and I had to look up uh, what was going on <laughs> because I recognized the voice. Obviously, you know it's it's un- it was I was very clearly Booker T. Um, and yeah, he so he so he got fired, and then did he join a stable as GI Bro? Or did he just like? Yeah, there seems to be this weird thing going around where if Eric Bischoff fires you, you can just get rehired if you adopt a military name. <laughs> That's what everyone everyone in the MIA was fired, and I guess Eric Bischoff just has such love for our troops that he'll automatically sign you if you have a military name. Well, as long as you know the workaround, I guess. That's fair enough. Office politics, right? Um, yeah, no, that was that was very strange to me. And it's also just a, a really dumb gimmick. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but what are you going to do? This was... And I don't like to use this word, but this entire gimmick is is problematic for me because I remember at the time liking the G.I. Bro gimmick to a certain extent because, as Booker says in this promo, it's something that he used, I believe, in uh, in uh, global wrestling uh, back in Texas back in the day. And I remember watching some of those shows on ESPN, you know, Global Wrestling, underrated uh, company. I think Cactus Jack was in there, and they had some other names of, that uh, the listeners would recognize. And I remember uh, Booker being G.I. Bro, and also him and Stevie Ray were not Harlem Heat, they were the Ebony Experience, which is still a <laughs> – like, that's a beautiful tag team name somebody should should uh, bring back. But at the time, like, while I dug the, the little nostalgia beat, it also felt stupid for a guy that had been gaining so much momentum in 2000 and a guy that looked to be on the cusp of something big and this could be your next homegrown star and – it felt like a step back in a way as well. So I, I, I was torn by the entire GI Bro experiment. It also feels like Vince Russo just found out about this like last week. And he's like, 
God damn, that's that's just racist enough. It might work. <laughs> Do I have to call this guy GI Bro, or can I say Booker T? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to to paraphrase uh, the the great movie uh, Coming to America, is Mama named the Booker T? I'm gonna call him Booker T. Okay, because I just realized that GI Bro technically would be his government name. <laughs> He did the, He did this to pay for college retroactively. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, the, so, they, they, oh, well, wait a minute, Brian, man. They left so much money on the table with not only uh, G.I. Bro, but also the rest of the misfits in action. They could have done, you know, instead of tribute for the troops like the WWE did, they could have had their own, like uh, uh, misfits for the military and, and sent the misfits in action to – Army bases and and Navy ships and and uh, Air Force bases and and had the misfits in action be the the WCW ambassadors for our armed forces. Yeah, you you really you can't do a gimmick like this anymore. Like this was a this was clearly this was obviously pre nine eleven. We could joke about the military a little bit more now, but could you imagine them trying to do anything like this today? Like even Chris Melendez, who was legitimately in the military, yeah. felt like cheap and exploitive. I mean, I, yeah, they, they, I think that there's enough sort of military style in, like, some of the gimmicks, you know, that, like, John Cena is basically a troop, you know, like, that's basically his, yeah. you know, so, I, I, yeah, to have, it's, I mean, it's also stolen valor, right? You know, excuse me, sir, who was your wrestling commander? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> in a way, maybe it would have been a gimmick that would have gotten over huge if they'd done it in, like, 2002, just because it would have, you know, been right after 9-11 when, like, the jingoism was at, like, its ultimate height, kind of. But, uh, you know, it's I guess it's nice to show some restraint. Uh, it's not something you would expect, but WCW was also dead at that point, so maybe that's part of why. But, anyway. Oh, no, no, they would have had, had a stable called Stolen Valor, if they could have. <laughs> so Booker, with his face painted in camouflage paint, explains why he went back to the G.I. Bro character. Bro then challenges Stasiak to a boot camp match at the Great American Bash. Booker T then shows us footage of Mike Awesome powerbombing him a month ago, which caused him to miss the last month of action. Bro then calls Awesome out. Awesome, apparently ready and awaiting this challenge, backs into the arena in an ambulance and heads to the ring with a stretcher. Awesome and Bro brawl onto the entrance ramp, and Awesome back body drops booker into the ring but booker lands on his feet awesome hits an awesome bomb right away and awesome gets up on top but bro hits a drop kick booker botches a leapfrog as awesome comes off the ropes but he recovers and lands a sidekick booker and awesome then brawl onto the rampway and awesome nails booker with his medical halo awesome sets up for an awesome bomb on the ramp but ddp sneaks in from behind with a chair DDP and Booker then do a combined urinage onto a table below the ramp. They then throw Awesome into the ambulance, and the match is over. So I guess this was an ambulance match. They never told us this. By the standards of the time, this was about as clean a win as you're going to get. Yeah, and I will give them points for paying attention to their own continuity. You know, the fact that you had Booker bring up the reason he wanted to fight Awesome is because Awesome was the guy that put him out put him on the shelf you know and injured him and so i at least like that little point uh the match wasn't great which is surprising to me because i like both of these guys uh but for whatever reason they just didn't click in the ring and it was also really short you know if you're gonna go through the trouble of doing an ambulance match it should be longer than five minutes 
Yeah, that was that's the ambulance stipulation was crazy to me because it's like again giving away stuff for free. You know, usually they don't trot out the gimmicks like that. It's like that, that's that's like the theme of this entire. It's just like it's it's like a, it's like you would get like gimmick gout from watching this for too long. There's <laughs> it's like it's like too rich of all you know. It's like too much of all this stuff at once. I feel like where they, you know they hold nothing absolutely nothing back. Um, you know, you, there's a run in in every match. There's crazy stipulations. There's random stuff. There's people rebranding as new characters. There's multiple. It seems like at least I don't know the whole continuity, but like multiple returns after long absences all in one show. Like I, I mean, it was just you know like right because there's titles being thrown around and being defended and some changing hands. It was just there's just so much. It's like this this grotesque opulence. Like everything you can offer, you know, to the point that it makes it like it devalues everything almost. Backstage, Palumbo and Stasiak are holding Elizabeth hostage when a knock is heard at the door. A piece of paper is slipped under the door. Palumbo reads it, and it says, It's 419. Got a minute? <laughs> what witty writing there. I mean, woo. <laughs> Chronic walks in and beats down Palumbo and Stasiak. Miss Elizabeth then flees the room during the melee. Why do we keep pushing... I looked at I a rep for being huge potheads, but here we are. We just can't stop with making stoner jokes about these two guys. I love that they both had those uh, the classic late '90s, early 2000s those mesh shirts, those terrible mm. mesh shirts, which is just like that's the gimmick. Is just they wear those dumb shirts, and that's like enough to give them a character and personality. I thought that was uh, that was just a nice touch. That was like a like a visual time machine. They're like a off-Broadway production of the Hardy Boys. It's like we, 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 we couldn't get Matt and Jeff, so here, put on these shirts, and uh, you guys will have to do. Outside, F-U-N-B Hulkster arrives in his midlife crisis mobile and walks into the <laughs> arena. In the distance, the Goldberg monster truck pulls up, and a man gets out. And that man is Bill Goldberg. <laughs> yes, Goldberg is back with zero advertising. <laughs> we were not prepared for this at all, but Bill Goldberg is back, everybody. Look at that. <laughs> this is the first time we're getting Goldberg this year because he got injured the week before the beginning of this year. Yeah, so th- this would be our, our first proper introduction to one uh, Bill Goldberg. And it it felt, I don't know, Brian, like it felt cool and anticlimactic at the same time, if that's even a thing. Like I was like, oh, cool, Goldberg's back. And then I was like, uh. It would have been nice if they had, uh, you know, given me some buildup and some pop and circumstance. <laughs> yeah, that was really strange. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I didn't know he was gone for that long. You know, I, I guess if they said it on commentary, then I missed it. But this, I mean, six months he's gone, and that's the that's the how was that not the lead angle on the show? He comes out to interrupt something two thirds of the way through or halfway through, challenges uh, a guy to a pay per view match, or, or and then just leaves, and that's it. And then he. I, I love that he comes back, and then he because he, did he show did he get out of the monster truck? Did I miss that? I think it might have been too big of a jump down, so he was just sort of standing next to it, it being implied that he had gotten out of the monster truck. Well, because he doesn't leave, he doesn't leave in the monster truck. No, <laughs> no, we'll get to that later. It was very funny, <laughs> but but you're right. I mean, he comes back, and the thing that's so weird is that. The very next week, they'd be in Atlanta, where he'd have his first match back. And it almost feels like you could have just like announced on this show yeah. that he'd be back the next week. 
You know, Rus- yeah, get- Russo doesn't have, have that kind of patience. He's like, uh, why would I want to pr- prolong Goldberg for one more week, bro, when I can have him show up in a monster truck and then leave in a clown car? It's going to be great. Yeah, it's really, it's so weird. He's like, it's like he doesn't understand the, he, he writes the storylines, but doesn't understand like the carny part of the business where you're constantly selling the next thing. Yeah. Like he wants to give you everything now, which then if you get everything you want, you're not going to want it to, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it, they, you could tease it out for a month, you know, Goldberg, we're going to have an interview with Goldberg. Then, you know, Goldberg, you know, he's coming back. Then this and that, it, that, it was really very strange. Backstage, Ric Flair continues searching for his family, while David and Miss Hancock are shown walking together. Back in the arena, Eric Bischoff comes out with Kimberly, Billy Kidman, Tori, Horace, and the cat. Bischoff begins a promo with the cat repeating every fucking word he says. I don't know if they thought this was going to get over. Bischoff says that the Hulkster is painted into a corner, because he, but he has a parting gift for him, the special referee for the Great American Bash. Bischoff says that Horace will be the referee for Hogan's final match with Kidman at the pay-per-view. Hulk Hogan then makes his entrance and says that he's going to kick Kidman's ass, as well as Horace's, at the pay-per-view. Finishes by promising that in July, he will be the WCW heavyweight champion, which was a statement that would end up being half true. Now that we've got kind of two established branches of the new blood, you know, we've got the Russo wing, with uh, David Flair and Jeff Jarrett and those guys. And then we've got the Bischoff wing who outside of Kimberly Page, like I'm not interested in anybody in the Bischoff side of the camp. But, uh, you know, you talk about Ernest Miller because whenever there's a segment that I don't like, uh, Patrick, I, I don't know if you've uh, you know heard the show before, but if there's a segment I don't like, I tend to kind of go into my own mind and, and rewrite my own canon. And in my <laughs> head canon, uh, you know, Ernest Miller was doing the repeating gimmick here. And, and so in my head... He got a time machine, went forward one year to 2001, uh, saw Pootie Tang in the theaters, and saw the part where uh, Mario Joyner is repeating everything Chris Rock says, and it, it ultimately leads to Chris Rock blowing up at Mario Joyner, and, and that's that's what I think. Like he's doing that gimmick a year, or maybe let me let me let me revise my head cannon. The cat did this on Nitro in Salt Lake City. Chris Rock is watching. And he's, he's sitting on the couch with Louis C.K. And he's like, Louis, that'd be a great bit for my movie. And uh, that's the best Chris Rock I got right now. Uh, and <laughs> I think uh, that that's where that, that scene in Pootie Tang came from. The, this great mic work here from one Ernest the Cat Miller. But other than that, I, I'm i just not thrilled with the Russo, uh, excuse me, with the Eric Bischoff side of this New Blood story. It, it, it seems less interesting and less... Uh, dare I say, less coherent than even the Vince Russo stuff. So this is, again, just me being completely ignorant about the, the, the title picture, but Hogan Hogan is fighting Kidman. Does Kidman have the belt that Hogan's talking about, or is he talking about the belt that Ric Flair has at this point? He's talking about the belt that Flair has at this point in the show. <laughs> so, 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 now, so now he's saying, I'm coming for the face champ, even though I'm also a face Okay. Um, yeah, that was really muddled to me. I don't know. And also, Hogan is talking about the red and yellow, uh, and he's wearing all black like he's Hollywood Hogan. So what? I don't. Did, is there some kind of stipulation he's not allowed to wear the red and yellow? Did he lose a match or something that has to do with that? Because why wouldn't he wear the red and yellow? This is he. He just 
He hasn't been wearing the red and yellow lately. He's been calling himself Terry Bollea because this is a real fight and he's in his real self. <laughs> but apparently he might wear the red and yellow. I don't understand. It almost feels like, if anything, Vince Russo finally realized that just calling this fucking 42-year-old guy Terry Bollea isn't getting over. So let him go back to the old thing. Yeah, and plus, you know, when it's Terry Bollea, then he doesn't have a 10-inch penis. But when he's Hulk Hogan, he's got a 10-inch penis. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you thought a Hogan segment had actually ended without him burying the younger talent, <laughs> you would be wrong. We come back from break, and we are shown footage from during the commercial where Hulk Hogan cleaned house and beat up everyone in the <laughs> ring single-handed. <laughs> Nashton walks down to the ring for his handicap match, but is attacked from behind by his opponents Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott. Nash, of course, has the upper hand until Steiner hits him in the back of the head with a wrench. The heels bring Nash into the ring, and the bell rings. Tank and Rick stomp on Nash for a little bit as the crowd lightly chants Goldberg. Goldberg's music hits, and the crowd erupts. This is easily the biggest pop of the year. Goldberg hits the ring and spears Steiner. Goldberg then gives Steiner the jackhammer as Tank bails from the ring. Goldberg extends his hand to Nash, and the two hug. Goldberg gets the mic and says he's been sitting at home listening to Tank run his filthy mouth. Goldberg says if Tank has the balls to show up next week in Atlanta, his ass is next. Goldberg then rips off his tank top, shout out to Major Guns, and grunts. <laughs> I thought this was great. This was so. This was just so much fun. I, I, I was the biggest little Goldberg mark as a kid, and this brought back so many memories. It, it had the intensity that we didn't quite get with Goldberg last year for obvious reasons. Um, however, I have to bring up one major gripe that I've had ever since I was 13. Why the hell is Goldberg helping Kevin Nash? I've always had a problem with this. <laughs> Nash screwed Goldberg out of his streak, and they never settled it. If they had maybe shook hands, if they would had a rematch, but they never did. This was still one of the big, never-resolved feuds in WCW. I think you just chalk it up to, uh, you know, uh, faces are always dumb, you know? And so, <laughs> and so oh, I'm doing the right thing because it's not right the two guys are beating him up. And that's the, that's, I don't know. I will say Goldberg looked terrific uh, when, the, when the shirt came off. You know, he clearly was in fighting shape um, as compared to Tank Abbott, who is, I guess, was an MMA guy. So he probably really could kick Goldberg's ass in a shoot fight. But um, that's like a, was Tank Abbott a big star? Because that seems like a weird comeback match. I know it wasn't like a pay-per-view match, but, you know, or is he just more grist for the mill? Like Goldberg's just going to start spooling up another another uh, streak or something. This was supposed to be the big feud. Okay. But then Russo had David Arquette being Tate. But then uh, Russo had David Arquette beat Tank Abbott three weeks ago. <laughs> so uh, at home, Goldberg got pissed and said, fuck that. I'm beating him my first night back. Fair enough. Uh, that's yeah, good, good booking, smart, smart work by everybody on that one. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, so this was like the biggest thing that happened in that year, kind of, because I mean, because that's the thing is somebody who was only tangentially aware of WCW at the time, you know, that Goldberg seemed to be the one thing that they had that WWF did, could not offer. You know, he was like, he looked like, you know, he obviously looks like Austin, but. He, he had like this sort of silent, you know, I guess he obviously he cut a little short promo on this, but, you know, I always thought of him as a guy who like basically never spoke and just came in and beat people up and that was it. So it was exciting to see, but I, I it certainly didn't feel like it was the biggest deal in the world. But that's just because I was coming into it with no context, I guess. Well, I'll certainly say that for me, that next week's Nitro 
was the biggest thing in the world because <laughs> I was 13 years old. It was in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta. And just a little tease for the listeners, I was at this Nitro. <laughs> and we will get deep into that on the next episode. <laughs> and, and the thing about Goldberg, too, to Patrick's point, is in 2000 and even now to this day, I always thought he had some of the best physical charisma I've ever seen. You know, he wasn't great on his on promos back then. He's gotten better now, as we saw during his most recent WWE run. But the physical charisma that this dude had was unmatched. And you saw the way that this place came unglued when the dude came out. And then all it took, Spear, Jackhammer, and you know what? We're happy. We're, we're glad this guy is back. And he's one of the few people at this time that really is able to jump off the screen in WCW. So it, A, it's good to see Goldberg back, but B, getting to the point of why would he shake Nash's hand? I understand that's a bit of a continuity error, Brian, but wrestling is nothing if not a reflection of society. And you of all people should know, Brian, man, that millionaires got to stick together. You know, it, it's tough being a millionaire out here in these mean streets. So if you've got a guy that's in your same tax bracket, you better be friends. The strange thing to me about this feud is that, you know, this feud, like the overarching, like the main storyline, millionaires versus new blood, is that there's nobody in new blood really who jumps off, like, like, you, like you said, like jumps off the screen. So you've got all these larger-than-life Hall of Fame, you know, top 50 wrestling guys. And then it's a bunch of guys who, you know, it's sort of like it's booking that's sort of, or at least aligning the people that sort of, like, proves its own point. Mm. Like, oh, yeah, these guys are all overlooked for a long time. It's like, well, I think we're starting to see why, you know, because the reactions you get uh, from people. And, you know, and the booking could be different. It would be done differently. But it, it was just, it's just weird to watch that, like, all of the top guys – even guys who are normally heels are now all faces because they're all just like it's the stars versus the not stars. It just it's just a strange way to use people when you could you know. But again, that's Vince Russo, right? So you know, who knows? You know, kind of the the, the four or five guys you would have expected to be the top anchors would have been Scott Steiner was certainly positioned to be a top guy in the New Blood, but then he turned a couple weeks later. Uh, you have Mike Awesome, who the booking isn't really helping him all that match. Billy Kidman, same same problem there. Vampiro, constantly getting buried. And then the tippy top of the New Blood should be Jeff Jarrett. But every time he's out here for a promo segment, Russo and Bischoff are, are, are talking. And he's not. Like, he's, he's just seen as a sidekick the whole time. Russo and Bischoff are the main stars on that, uh, on that New Blood side. Backstage, Pamela attempts to interview Goldberg as he leaves the building. And when I say leaves the building, I mean he he we see him drive away, <laughs> not in the monster truck, but in a small black Miata that is parked right next to it. <laughs> it why did did we have to watch him like get in the car, put the key in the ignition, turn it over, shift out a first drive? We stuck on this guy for a long fucking time, and this might have been funnier than the Kimberly Page vignette. Oh, it was so great because, A, you've got this massive dude, Bill Goldberg, getting in a car that was not built for a human being the size of Bill Goldberg, so you've got that visual. Then you've also got him getting in his car and driving past the monster truck, which presumably he arrived to the arena in, so I, I don't know if Bill... Well, he is a millionaire, so maybe he's he just arrives with fleets of vehicles at his disposal everywhere he goes. Uh, then, like you said, Brian, they stuck on that shot for 
about a good 20, 30 seconds too long as we see Bill Goldberg doing donuts in the parking lot, uh, doing his best Vin Diesel from the Fast and the Furious. So, yeah, this was a, a beautiful shot for, for all the wrong reasons. I mean, first of all, the idea of getting in a car shirtless and sweaty is so funny because it's so <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> That's got to be like leather seats. It's probably really hot and he's sticking to the thing. And it also, why would you, his, I mean, you could, I don't know, it's just bizarre. I don't want to know that Goldberg drives a car. I want him to be like a mythical guy who just comes in and kills everybody. I, I don't need to know that he's got to, you know, get his emissions checked every four years, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's just, it, it just, it was bizarrely mystique shattering to me. And there's something about the fact that it's a, during the day and not at night. I know that's when they tape the show and all that, but. Um, it just makes it even less sort of cinematic. You know, it's just like in the afternoon, a guy just leaving, you know, the office early. Like, it, it was just, yeah, that was, I mean, I was laughing out loud, because mostly because of the shirtless things. I thought it was just so over the top. But, and the fact that, you know, where did this Goldberg truck come from and where, who's getting it out of here, you know, if it's not him, which I thought was very funny. Um, but, yeah, that was... That's just really strange because it's completely – it's no it doesn't add any context. It doesn't do anything of any value, and it takes up time you could use for maybe more – have a longer match or something for somebody else. And you get to get him yelling at the back. We got another shot at the backstage reporter again, right? Doesn't he say, like, shut up or get out of my way? Or, you yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. So we make sure – This is just a, a chance to – yeah, this is just a chance to further humiliate Pamela. Right. So we just got to make it a point to get that in there. Somebody else taking a dig. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was it was totally bizarre, but that it might have been my favorite thing about the whole thing because it was just super weird about the whole episode. I, I, it was great. Hardcore champ Terry Funk comes out for a title defense against a surprise opponent. We are shown footage from Thunder where Shane Douglas thought he was defending the hardcore title against Ralphus in a gorilla costume, but it was really Terry Funk. <laughs> this deception allowed Funk to win back the belt. Funk says he doesn't care who Bischoff's big surprise for him is, because he's coming to the back to put his foot right up Bischoff's butt. This brings out Funk's opponent, Vampiro. Funk hits a low blow on the rampway. Funk then nails a pile driver, but only gets a one because the referee was out of position. Vampiro then hits a low blow and a nail on, and a nail in the coffin on the ramp. Rather than try to win the hardcore title, Vampiro beats up referee Jamie Tucker and gives him the nail in the coffin and gives him the nail in the coffin on the ramp as well. Vamp then takes Funk backstage and puts him through a table before beating up some stagehands. They brawl outside the building, and Vamp throws a trash can onto Funk. They then fight over to Vamp's gasoline tanker. Vamp takes out the hose and hits Funk with it. On commentary, Madden says that Vamp should burn Funk alive. Vampiro sprays Funk with gasoline until Sting makes the save. Sting takes over with kicks, and he cuts off the gasoline valve, as Vampiro gets a blowtorch out of the truck, security runs in and prevents this murder from occurring on live television. <laughs> I The things for me about this, I mean, I'm sure it was just as bad, but I don't remember it being as bad uh, when I used to watch the, uh, on the Raw and SmackDown, but the, these hardcore matches are so bad. Mm. Like, nothing looks like it even hurts. It's like, oh man, look out! He's got a uh, uh, one of those like Sesame Street trash cans that like he grazed him in the head with, you know. And then even when they do the moves onto like the concrete floor, it doesn't make any noise. So I mean, I, you know, I know it probably hurts more, and I understand the logic of saying, oh no, that unprotected floor. 
but the 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 impact doesn't have you know because like the ring makes a big slamming noise and someone gets hit uh, you know on the side. This was just like you know, and obviously Terry Funk being you know at that point probably what in his fifties I don't even know, um, not at the top of his game, but he's always you know he's always fun to watch, just kind of you know uh, take a lot of abuse and dish out some amount of abuse, but it, it was the, this haphazard thing you know of just like this hardcore well anything goes man these guys are crazy. And then it's just kind of like a bunch of guys like shoving each other into pillars backstage and then like rolling around the parking lot and then <laughs> dumping gasoline on each other. It's just a bit, I don't know, it, it didn't really do anything for me. Mm. Yeah, the problem with not only the, the WCW hardcore matches this time, but even some of the WWF ones were that I think they both were trying to capitalize on the attention ECW had garnered in years previous, but they didn't understand why those ECW matches were over with the fans. Like, it wasn't just because you had dudes hitting each other with objects or fighting backstage or fighting in the crowd. There was something more to those ECW hardcore matches that I don't think WCW or WWF were ever able to recreate. Uh, And this, this Terry Funk match coming off of a really strong segment with Terry Funk. Uh, was it last episode, Brian, where we saw his daughter? Yeah, he like teased the retirement. His daughter was there, and uh, Shane Douglas got the title. Yeah, yeah the episode with Brandy. That was a really emotional, heartfelt segment with, with Terry Funk and Shane Douglas. And to go from that to this, uh, it, it just felt... It, I wasn't connected to it. It felt like we were doing stunts for stunts' sake. And then we had Chekhov's oil tanker, which came back into play and the payoff was unsatisfying and as it would be because anything else like if if you actually were able to achieve the desired outcome from this instrument or this prop or this set piece uh you'd have an old man in the hospital so yeah I, i don't i don't know why we had to go to the lengths of bringing this oil tanker here to salt lake city if if this was going to be the extent of its involvement and like what's and what's what's Vampiro thinking here? He's gonna kill Terry Funk, who's not even his enemy at this point. He's just a guy he has a match with, you know, just mm. to freak Sting out. If he kills him, he's gonna go to jail. Do you think a judge would allow him to post bail if he had a wrestling match? I think I think that'd be the court would be fair and lenient. Yeah, well, in that it, case. it depends on it depends on which judge, I guess. Right? Uh, that's that would be the uh, that would be the, the key question. Um, Hey, Vince Russo, you know he'd love to book a courtroom scene, so they should have just done it. Why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, 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 at least, I mean, so this, this title, this hardcore title in, in WCW, it doesn't have the, tw- the anytime, anywhere stip that, uh, that the WWF one had, right? It's just like a regular belt? Yeah. Yes. Because that, that was the only, that was like the saving grace of the WWF one, was that it was just like this crazy thing where anybody could be champion for like 10 seconds and then, you know. <laughs> Like that was that at least made it something different, and it justified the you know fighting backstage and all that crap because you could just do pinfalls anywhere, you could wake somebody up in bed and fight them and all that stuff. <laughs> but these guys doing this just just for the sake of doing it was sort of not you know it didn't really add anything to it. It was just kind of you know they might as well just be in the ring hitting each other with kendo sticks or whatever at that point. Backstage, Ric Flair is still searching for his family as Russo and David Flair threaten the Flair family in their backstage hideout. Shane Douglas comes in, and Russo tells him that he'll be facing Scott Steiner in the asylum tonight. Douglas freaks out, but Russo tells Douglas that it's for the U.S. title. 
Back at the Page household, DDP pulls up in an SUV to find all of his possessions in boxes on the yard. DDP tries to enter the house, but the locks have been changed. Kim then opens the door and greets her husband. DDP tells Kim to get the hell out, but police officers then show up and tell DDP to walk away. They inform him that Kim has a 500-foot restraining order against DDP. As the cops go to lock the doors, one of them tells him that his kids are a big fan. (laughs) Again, a great follow-up to the previous really fun vignette. (laughs) Oh, Brian, man. There was so much greatness in in this segment. Of course, we had the continued... Uh, grace and, and acting prowess of one Kimberly Page. Uh, you had DDP playing his part. Uh, but my favorite part, and this will, this will come as no surprise to the listeners, was the the kind of uh, flip on on uh, on the cultural norms, if you will, with the two uh, police officers who happened to be African-American gentlemen uh, laying down the law to one Diamond Dallas Page. And DDP <laughs> feeling oppressed by the system. I, I, I got a kick out of that. Backstage, Mike Awesome asks Kim for advice against DDP, but she wants no part of it. Chuck Palumbo then asks Kim for help in finding Liz. She has no interest in helping Chuck either until he suggests that she goes to the ring and calls out Elizabeth. More Thunder footage is shown as we see DDP started spanking Kim in the middle of the ring. I'd say that restraining order is totally justified here. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't, uh, remember this at all because like I've told the listeners, I was not watching Thunder even in the year 2000, even as a WCW fan, I was not going to subject myself to Thunder. Uh, but yeah, getting this little piece of information actually made the previous scene make more sense. I mean, so, so there's no intimation that she's banging around or anything. She just decided, no, I don't like you anymore. That was, that's just the whole thing. Uh, sometimes it's implied that like she and Bischoff are fucking, but <laughs> they neither of them likes playing that character, so they'll imply it, but they won't ever physically touch on screen. <laughs> uh, and you had it in that in that one vignette where Bischoff's asking what Kim is wearing, so I guess we're supposed to think that they are. But then there's also the long held wrestling rumor that Bischoff was fucking Kim anyway. Yeah, their on-screen relationship kind of reminds me of, uh, remember when Michael Jackson was married to Lisa Marie Presley, Ed, but you didn't buy the intimacy yeah. between the two of them? That's, that's the vibe I get from Eric and Kim. Kim, Mike Awesome, and Chuck Palumbo then make their way to the ring. As the crowd chants slut, Kim says that she has a big problem with Miss Elizabeth. Elizabeth then makes her way down and says that everyone is sick of Kim. Liz then asks Kim what she wants. Kim then sends Palumbo and Awesome to grab Liz. Kim wants to show Liz who's in charge. DDP then runs out and cleans house as Kimberly bails. Bischoff then comes out with two police officers. Bischoff points out that DDP violated the restraining order. Page doesn't put up a fight. He holds out his arms and allows the cops to arrest him. Chuck Palumbo then grabs his Lex Flexer and beats up both the cops and the handcuffed DDP, another felony on our hands. Lex Luger, in a face mask, makes the save and sends Palumbo to the floor with a clothesline. Mike Awesome then gets back to his feet and starts kicking DDP. This causes Carl Malone to hit the ring and hit Awesome with the diamond cutter. I take back what I said about Goldberg. This was the biggest pop of the year. <laughs> oh, this was so great. Seeing Carl Malone uh, come in and, and I, 
Malone is an interesting character because he's an NBA player who defies all the stereotypes, particularly in 2000, of NBA players of the time. Like he was uh, a dude that drove around in big rigs and he listened to country music and he wore blue jeans and cowboy boots. And, and I always loved the Malone ddp pairing. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, it, it seems like it was appropriate that there would be some kind of celebrity run-in. Um, it didn't. It didn't seem like a Russo show, you know, peak Russo without it. So I was glad when that happened. Um, you know, it, it's weird where you're. I, you know, I mean, you, you have who was a Mike Austin who was supposed to be like a monster kind of he because he's a big guy, so he was kind of like a monster heel type, right? So. Now you have a guy who's not trained in the art of being a pro wrestler, but at least he's an athlete, I guess. You know, doing the same, doing the diamond cutter, which puts him down the same way it is if DDP did it, um, which is fine. I don't really care. You know, it's an easy enough move to do. Um, obviously, it's the, pretty much the same as the uh, what's it called now, right? I mean, there's a reason that move just keeps coming back because everyone just likes to watch it. Um, and it's en- yeah, and it's and it's endlessly repeatable. You could do it on anybody all day. Kind of like the stunner was the same way. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was fun. It, 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 there was nothing cringy about it. Malone was clearly having a good time. He didn't like embarrass himself physically or anything like that. Um, uh, that's pretty much like the uh, platonic ideal of a sort of silly celebrity, just sort of you know goofy running 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 thing. Do you think Donny Austin was sitting in his chair a little a little sour? They didn't ask him to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he got on the phone when he got home and just talked to Sister Rear off. Golly gee, Marie, why, why couldn't I get that spot? <laughs> they could have put him in like a John, John Stewart type. They could have put him in like a John Stewart type role. Ah, he, with the chair, with the chair shot, just do a whole. <laughs> Backstage, Ric Flair cuts a ranting promo while standing next to Pamela. It really wouldn't be fair to call this an interview. <laughs> Flair says that Jarrett is getting his title match tonight. Steiner comes to the ring and cuts a promo about his dick. He promises to fuck all the women in the audience. (laughs) The asylum lowers as Scott's opponent Shane Douglas comes out. Steiner assaults Douglas and gives him a clothesline followed by a gorilla press slam. Douglas tries to get out of the cage, but there is no door. Scott whips Shane into the cage and he actually pops back as though he hit the ropes. Douglas applies a taped fist, but Steiner blocks it and gets a bear hug. Douglas then punches Steiner right in the face with the punched hand. Steiner comes back with suplexes and puts on the Steiner recliner for the submission win. So yeah, we kind of neutralized Shane's like hidden weapon. But honestly, I this wasn't bad. This was probably what we should have done last week, Nate. We got the cage over. We got over Steiner. No real complaints on my on my part. Yeah, and the aesthetic of the asylum aside, like I think there was a way they could have built this up to be a big deal and, and presented this as a big match, you know, and, uh, you know, to Patrick's credit, like I think a lot of what makes the WWF slash WWE great is their presentation because on the surface, like a hell in a cell, like it's just a cage with a, with a, with a roof on it. Like there shouldn't be this mystique and this aura around the hell in a cell or the elimination chamber, or dare I say the Punjabi prison, but <laughs> They build it up so much that by the time we actually get to the match, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm invested in this in this stipulation. And that could have been the same thing that WCW did for Scott Steiner, but in Russo fashion, like he, he never gives things time to breathe. He doesn't give us time to breathe on the back end, and he never gives us time to anticipate on the front end. So 
while this match was certainly better than the previous Asylum match, I still think there was so much left on the table in terms of, you know, really getting this cage across as, wow, this is a big deal. You're you're in Scott Steiner's house now. How is Shane Douglas going to, you know, beat the odds? And and I never had that feeling while watching this. Yeah, I liked I love that Scott Steiner, I, I, I wasn't really exposed to him. He was in WWF for like a very short time as Big Papa Pump, you know, that, that guy. But this idea that he's just like a horny guy who just like is super <laughs> sex, like a sex positive creep is such a, it's so weird. <laughs> like I can't, I don't even know how to, cause again, I, I, I was just shocked cause I thought this was the family friendly show, but it's so weird <laughs> that he's just like, you know, coming in with these two li- women who look like porn stars, basically who may have been for all I know, I, you know, but like, and the, the, the intimation is that they presumably are just banging like sting style tantric sex, other sting, uh, <laughs> I was like, now, now the vision of Steve Borden backstage. <laughs> but it, it's just, yeah, I, I just think it, when it, when it, when the reality is he's so roided up that his dick is, and balls are probably the size of like a you know a, a racquetball, basically. You know, this, but this idea that he's just like you know laying down a pipe or whatever. You know, he's, he's just, it's truly a gift. I think it's great. He's he, he's clearly an insane man, and I'm glad he was able to kind of run away with this thing. Kidman comes out wearing a Hulk Hogan shirt and doing Hulkster mannerisms. The lights go out and Sting makes his entrance. So we're getting Kidman versus Sting in a totally unadvertised match. These two lock up and Sting backs Kidman into the corner. Sting attempts a suplex, but Kidman flips out and hits a tornado bulldog. Sting tosses Kidman out on the ramp before tossing him back inside. Sting then wipes out Kidman with an extremely impressive running dive over the top rope. Easily the most impressive thing on the entire show. Kidman comes back, goes up top, but misses a splash. This allows Sting to hit a stinger splash. He applies the scorpion deathlock, but Tori distracts the ref. Vampiro comes down, nails Sting from behind with the blowtorch, and puts Kidman on top of Sting for the pinfall win. Uh... Let's pause here for a second, because there was more of the segment, but let's discuss this match that sadly went just two and a half minutes. Nate, I thought these two had just absolutely fantastic chemistry, and sadly, this is the first and only singles match these two ever had. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's sad, because I did enjoy the match as short as it was, and the whole time I was watching thinking, if only Hulk Hogan hadn't shot off his mouth on that radio show— we could have done a Sting Kidman feud, and I have to believe Sting will at least give Billy Kidman, you know, some some credible offense, and, and you know, give Billy more than Hulk Hogan did. And the uh, you, you mentioned the the dive from the ramp back into the ring, kind of like uh, Hernandez did all the time on on TNA. I love the the fact that the ramp goes up to the ring because it it does offer different possibilities and, and more creative spots that you can execute during the match. And yeah, it was a, it was a fun little match. I wish they could have given them, you know, even five more minutes uh, of this thing because I like Billy Kidman. Obviously I'm a fan of that man called thing. I think he's a national treasure. Uh, so yeah, I, I was, I was happy with, with uh, this little bit, this little taste that we got. And it, it's a weird feud because Kidman, like from what I remember was like a really great, like high flyer type. So He's get, that his matches with Hogan are going to be such a drag. I mean, isn't Kidman the guy who does the shooting star press? Yep. Yes. I mean, that's like the most exciting thing you can see in a wrestling ring. Like, it's crazy to watch the idea that, you know, you're going to have him versus, you know, a guy who has three moves. 
<laughs> and just kind of walks around until he does them. Oh, he also hits you with his belt too sometimes. But uh, you know, it, like that was. I mean, that, I, I guess it's good to elevate Kibben to that point, but it's also like the product is just not going to be super entertaining, probably. Because if you, if you ground somebody who's a high flyer, Hogan's not going to take those bumps where he's getting crazy, like cro- you know, cross bodies or whatever from the top. You know, so yeah, it's just strange. Well, what had happened was Hogan went on the Bubba the Love Sponge, pot, uh, the Bubba the Love Sponge radio show, the same Bubba the Love Sponge from many years later, and essentially just shot off his mouth and started saying that guys like Billy Kidman could never get over. And then when people got rightfully pissed at him online, he said, oh, no, 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 we're going to be working a program together, which was not the case. So then they were forced into doing this program. Not just that. But that was supposed to only last one month. Nate, do you remember Bret Hart? And you remember Bret Hart being on this TV show and then just ab- abruptly disappearing? They thought they were going to be able to do Hogan and Bret at this pay-per-view, and then someone had to remind Vince Russo that Bret Hart <laughs> has retired. <laughs> well, Bret Hart, I mean, he, he didn't he have to just abruptly retire because of the concussion stuff or something? Yes, yes, thanks to uh, the man who returned tonight, uh, Goldberg. Yeah, um, but... Since when does Hogan care of people getting mad at him? How how did that force them into doing this program? That doesn't make any sense. That is the one thing that doesn't make sense. I guess maybe – I mean the internet was fairly new. Maybe he was afraid it would hurt his ability to be a baby face. I don't quite get it. Yeah, I mean especially in those days. I mean that was like you'd have to go on like a message board to find that kind of people getting mad. It's not like you know now where people complain. You know, but, I mean WWE has leaned into the skid of – you know, everything being a work all the time, even like the booking of people who people think should be bigger is now part of the, it's all part of the work. But, but back then, I mean, the idea that you would be, you would let outrage dictate who's in like your top level feuds is, is that's just extremely at odds with what I had thought, you know, the whole sort of scene was that back then. But yeah, I mean, obviously this was not planned because it's not a good match. It, it, you know, the two of them don't, their styles just have make no sense with each other. See, now I'm just envisioning, like, an angry Terry Balea after one of these Nitros hopping on uh, Yahoo or, or uh, Netscape and getting on the, best, on the in the chat rooms. As, uh, may, maybe he's under What You Gonna Do 37 or uh, T-Bolea <laughs> 64. They'll never know it's me, brother. And he's just, you know, getting into these flame wars with Internet, uh, internet fans about uh, his in-ring work. So, yeah, I, I, I like Internet troll Terry Belay now. That, that's that's, that's yeah. the character I want to see. He's like Kevin Durant. He's got sock puppet <laughs> accounts. <laughs> <laughs> After the match, Vampiro and Kidman beat up on Sting until Hulk Hogan sprints down, not in his F-U-N-B, but in the classic red and yellow. The heels run into Hulkster's fists, but Bischoff comes down and nails Hulk in the back with a chair. Hulk no-sells, though, as... Hulk stalks Bischoff with the chair. The cat sneaks in and kicks the chair into Hulk's face. Hulk rolls forward, though, avoiding the bump. <laughs> Horace joins the action for a four-on-one beatdown. The heels rip off Hogan's shirt and throw it into a trash can. Vampiro then pours gasoline into the trash can and lights it with his torch. Vampiro drags Sting towards the flaming trash can, but Chronic runs down for the save. The new blood then flees as the good guys tend to sting. Crazy enough, for a segment involving the return of the red and yellow and possibly lighting Sting on fire, <laughs> again, miraculously, Nate, this was crazy Vince Russo booking done right. 
Yeah, I, I didn't hate this, uh, except for the fact that just looking at WCW's bottom line, we could have gotten the entire Vampiro Sting storyline over tonight without the expense of the of the oil tanker. And I'm keep going back to that. But if if we had just done this little bit here, where they burn Hogan's shirt and they try to put Sting into the fire, that gets your point across without Vampiro without me having to believe Vampiro actually went to a commercial driver's license training school and was able to procure his truck. Uh, but yeah, it. I think the red and yellow return, it should have hit me bigger than it actually did. Uh, but that's just because I'm not the biggest Hulk Hogan fan in the world. But I'm sure if I were a Hulkamaniac in the year 2000, that might have gotten a pop out of me. Yeah, it was, It was. you know, I mean, you got just a bunch of crazy stuff happening. It, it, it you know, it, it really is just weird to see some of these people who are mixing it up. I mean, like, Horace is what, Hogan's nephew or something? Is that right, in real life? Yes. Mm-hmm. And he was just kind of like a, a lot of family, a lot of family-based. Mm-hmm. I know that obviously WWF had the McMahons, but, like, everyone's kids are just, like, in the mix in, the, in this, it seems like. Because they were talking about there was another funk somewhere, right? And there's also, obviously, the Flair kids, and then, you know... Um, I don't know. It was it, it was it was just a weird observation. But the like that guy Horace looks like he's got no, he has like no <laughs> charisma. Like he the, he's just a guy. Like uh, which I he's, but obviously once you know that he's Horace Balea or whatever his real name is, you know then it's oh okay no wonder he's in the main event now, rubbing shoulders with all these guys. I think just a guy was actually his gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was the original Jag. But but unfortunately, uh, Brian, brother Patrick missed uh, the the heart-wrenching turn a couple of weeks ago when Horace turned his back on his uncle. It, it's uh, uh, an angle people still talk about to this day. <laughs> yes, he turned his back to his uncle and his front to Tory Wilson. <laughs> well, anybody do that. That's fair enough. <laughs> He's just a man. <laughs> Main event time is Jeff Jarrett makes his way out with David Flair, who will be guest refing this match. World champion Rick then comes out wearing wrestling attire for the first time in two months. David distracts Ric Flair, which allows Jarrett to attack him from behind. Rick comes back with chops and punches him in the corner. Russo and R&B security then bring out Beth and Reed. Rick runs at Russo, but Jarrett comes in from behind with punches. Jarrett shoves Rick off the rampway, and Rick takes this opportunity to blade. Back inside, Jarrett chokes Flair with the middle rope. David then comes at Rick with a Statue of Liberty little statuette, but Rick blocks it and delivers a shot of his own taking out David. Back in the ring, Jarrett puts Rick in the figure four. Charles Robinson then enters the ring as the new ref. Rick rolls up Jeff with a small package but only gets a two. Rick then goes to the top and actually hits a top rope axe handle. As Rick goes for the figure four, Jarrett kicks Rick into Charles Robinson and then takes a bump. R&B security jumps in, but Rick takes care of them. Russo then puts Robinson's referee shirt on, and he enters the ring. Rick takes out Russo and sets up for the figure four, but this allows Jarrett to sneak in and hit Rick with the guitar. Jarrett covers, and Russo makes the three count, ending Rick Flair's final title reign at just two hours. So yeah, a lot happened there. I feel like I'm running out of breath here because there's just so much booking there at the second half, but... For the standards of the time, this got seven and a half minutes. I felt like they delivered. We've talked about it before that when you have two professionals like a Flair or like a Jarrett, even if 
there's all this Russo window dressing around it that can detract from the actual match. Fundamentally, they're going to have a pretty solid match. And while, like, I think this match was extremely uh, comp, uh, not compact, but extremely packed uh, is the word I meant to say. Extremely packed with uh, all sorts of run-ins and extracurricular activity. The core of this match, which was Jared and Flair, I thought was solid. It, it was a good foundation to build on. And I didn't hate all of the hijinks and the shenanigans. Matter of fact, that might be my my title. That, that'll be the pull quote for this episode. I didn't hate it. Like, I'm not going to give a, a ringing <laughs> endorsement, but I, I didn't hate it as much as the past episodes we watched. So... For the main event angle slash match, I thought this was this was decent. Yeah, I mean this this felt like a you know a decent payoff, I guess. You know, I mean, you you know that someone's getting hit with the guitar, and that's fine. I like how they just increasingly became more and more made out of like balsa wood, which is good because obviously <laughs> somebody would have been dead otherwise. But like Honky Tonk Man used to have like a real guitar, which was a whole different thing. But Jarrett's like if the, if the wind changes, it blows up, which is fine. Um, but I thought the thing that I thought was weird was like they kept his family. Didn't didn't they get what they wanted? He lost the belt, right? So why do they keep his family? Are they just so? Yeah, you you reference it a- after the match. Fans are just filling the ring with garbage as Jarrett celebrates. <laughs> yes. As Jarrett runs his mouth on the rampway, a wad of trash hits him right in the fucking face. Charles Robinson then tends to a bloody Rick as David and security taunt Rick with Beth and Reed. Rick attempts to give chase as we fade to black. So yeah, that's the that's the end of the show. Uh, we have a new world champion. Vince Russo is apparently going to kidnap this family, and that's how we go off the air again. By the standards of the time, by the rules that Vince Russo has set for this program, this was not a bad episode. I thought. I mean, is, was the garbage thing a regular thing? It seems <laughs> that was so. <laughs> that was a regular WCW thing that. Was never like it was just a southern wrestling thing, I guess, but it you certainly couldn't do it now in WWE. I remember I was like on Twitter the other day, and someone someone on Twitter was like, Oh, you should never throw trash at a wrestling show, it's a danger to the performance. And I'm like, Come on, that's th- in WCW, like every great angle, there's garbage in the <laughs> yeah. ring. The NWO, there's garbage in the ring. Uh, Goldberg getting screwed, there's garbage in the ring. It would not surprise me if. People who work for WCW jump-started this and were in the crowd throwing the first couple <laughs> cans of garbage. I mean, it's really, it's funny because it's like, what kind of heat do you want? Do you want someone trying to physically injure you or get stuff on you heat? I mean, I guess if that's what they want, they did it. This isn't like a John Rocker. Like, you're not throwing batteries. Right. Is someone just throwing, like, a, an empty cup or a popcorn bag? I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, it's like the it's like the american south version of the uh, the japanese thing where they all throw the streamers in the ring you know it's like a show of respect um yeah well i remember the that when mankind won the uh won the belt on raw that night you can watch when they when the guy's counting one two three well there's a huge like a like a full cup of soda that flies across and hits the ring right then but I, there certainly was nothing like this in wwf where it's just like piles of garbage and like clearly the crowd is just Certainly, there's nobody putting a stop to it, you know, because, you know, they they would have to, I don't know how they would go about doing it, but you would have some kind of show of force where everybody who throws garbage gets kicked out and banned for life or something like that, and it just wouldn't happen anymore. But clearly, they were, like, countenancing it enough to let it keep happening. Because I guess visually, it's nice because it drives home what they're trying to sell, you know, on the commentary, which is just, I mean, I I don't know, maybe this is just a personal taste thing, but I, the commentary was unbearable to me. 
I, I don't know if that if, is this known as like a good trio because even the play but even the oh no no even no, no, even no, no, the no, no, play no. by play by play guy is Tony Shivioni or whatever right Shivani yeah. Shivani he all he, he just screams it's just awful you know I mean he doesn't know how to turn it off or they should put them in a place where they're shielded from sound you know from the, the arena sound a little better so they don't have to yell like something it, it, it just I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm giving them advice uh, for 20 years ago now, but you know, it, it, but it, it really, it really was just like it. Added, the commentary added virtually nothing. You know, I mean, they're just trying to get, they're trying so hard to get stuff over by screaming all the time that you know, it sort of almost has the opposite effect. Yeah. This, anyway, this commentary team is an interesting mix because Tony Schiavone is somebody who I have always been a fan of, but this wasn't the best time period for one Tony Schiavone. Uh, as opposed to some of his stuff from the uh, late 80s and the uh, the early and mid-90s. I think that was peak Giovanni, this not so much. Uh, but you've also got Scott Hudson, who I really like, but I think he's underserved here. And then you've got uh, the character, let me, reiter- let me reiterate, the character, the character of Mark Madden. Who, he legally must say. Yes, who I never enjoyed on these episodes. So it's a, it's a very weird commentary team at this time. Yeah, because it was it wasn't even clear why you needed the, like a third. Like you know, yeah. it's almost like you have you have a play by play. I mean, like the, like the WWF model, you have a play by play guy and then like a heel guy or you know a color guy, but you know whatever the guy. You know, it, the third the third person. It was like they were they just sort of all blended together for me because their voices all sounded the same anyway. <laughs> and and not to further frustrate you, it might upset you to know that this company had Bobby Heenan under contract and they just put him on Thunder. Yeah, well, they probably were trying to prop up Thunder on some level, right? Because that was like their that was the, mm. that was the B show. Yep. Yeah, so I guess that's what I guess you have to do that on some level, but uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you create a situation where if nobody's watching the B show, I guess you're, you're torn between either you put the guy on and hope it makes people watch, or you just let it die. But at that point, why even do it? And the obvious answer is ad money, I guess. But um, yeah, oh well. Uh, but real quick, Brian, one thing one thing I really liked about this end episode uh, is that you know there, there should be consequences for actions in life, and uh, I think wrestling is not immune to that. And I don't want to speak ill of uh, a kid or somebody who is no longer with us, but uh, it kind of serves Reed right for the way he disrespected his mama at the top of the show. Like uh, you know, oh, this is this is karma, young man. This is what happens when you disrespect your parents. Uh, you end up uh, being kidnapped, and then you know it's it's a lesson for all of us. And here's the thing: we could continue to point out all the things we did not like about this episode, <laughs> but this is the part of the show where we must get to our silver linings. Uh, this is where we point out the things that we liked in the show, completely unvarnished that uh, we thought was a silver lining. And this is certainly easier than on past weeks. I already spoiled mine. I said that it is those sensational Kimberly Page vignettes. But, Patrick, for you, what was your silver lining on this episode? Um, I mean, I think the main, I mean, the, the main thing, and I probably already sort of signaled this, but the Goldberg getting in the car thing was just delightful. I know it was not meant to be. <laughs> it was completely unintentional, and it did not send the message that maybe they wanted to send. <laughs> But that was just the funniest thing in the world to me, that he would just, like, he never stopped in the locker room. He just went out, got in a fight, you know, delivered the promo, ripped his shirt off after he gave the promo, I think. So I'm not even sure why the shirt came off at all. <laughs> um, it, you know, like like, like, like that, that tr- like the idea of a guy who gets so mad that his shirt just comes off by default. 
is very funny because it's a good description of someone just getting insane, like way too mad to be functional in human society. But then he just storms out, yells at the person, and then just takes that interminably long time to get in the car. And I don't think he put his seatbelt on. That would have been really funny if he did, though. Uh, and then just peel out and like kind of drive away. That that I just I love that so much. That was great. <laughs> this is this this has been a a decent show. Like I like I said, I didn't hate this show, and we've had episodes the previous couple of weeks that have been really really bad really overbooked really nonsensical that i i did not enjoy watching it wasn't a pleasant experience this episode this week at least though was fun and and were funny at at times and i thought the goldberg thing was cool i enjoyed sting and kidman for what it was uh but i'm gonna have to agree with brian mann and go with uh, one kimberly page and and this was an eye-opening experience for me, Brian, because I remember liking this character in 2000 as it was happening, but I have so much more appreciation now, you know, given the climate of the company at the time, and I'm a little bit older than uh, maybe some of our listeners out there, so I I never really got into, you know, the the, the Beyonce standing or the Rihanna standing that takes, the, takes place online, but every time. Kimberly Page came on screen. I was a Kimberly Page stand. Like every segment, I'm just sitting there like, yes. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was enjoying it, man. I, the only thing negative about it is we don't get enough of her. And, and, and that's a good problem to have, I guess. So Kimberly Page is, uh, is my silver lining for this week. Patrick, I got to thank you so much for not only doing the show with us, but also for sitting through this uh, this episode of Nitro. Hopefully it maybe sparks some curiosity for you uh, in terms of uh, more from this promotion. But where can the people find you if they want a little bit more of you, if this episode didn't quite uh, satisfy their, their thirst? I know you got a comedy show here in uh, New York, and also you have a pretty successful and popular Twitter handle. Yeah, I'm I'm on I'm on Twitter, just freaking out about the world constantly, like everyone else. Um, <laughs> just everyone's everyone's brain is just completely broken, which is cool. Um, that's just the thing that will never end now. Uh, so, yeah, I'm on there. It's a p a t t y m o Patty Mo. That's me. And then, uh, yeah, I, have, I run a stand up show with my pal Eli um, every uh, Friday at eight thirty at a place called Karma Lounge in the East Village. It's like third uh, and first. Uh, yeah, come on through a free show we always book really good comics and uh, it's pretty fun fantastic and thank you once again to the listener for completing another experiment with us if this is your first time listening a full archive of the show is available at fightnetwork.com and liveaudiowrestling.com and if you have feedback for us send it over to keep it 2000 pod at gmail.com if you want more of me i am at brian maxman all over the internet and uh, nate as always it is now time for me to hand things over to you. Give the people the good word to hold them over until our next trial. Yes, again, I want to reiterate Brian's thoughts and uh, send a shout-out to you out there listening and uh, joining us every week on this experiment. Uh, shout-out to Brother Patrick for coming up on the Satellite of Hate this week and uh, continuing <laughs> this, this social experiment. And if you want to hear more from me, you can check me out on Twitter at in the number eight M O Z A I K at Nate Mosaic and uh, get my thoughts on sports and wrestling and uh, politics and this crazy world that we live in. And speaking of this crazy world we live in, I often end the show with uh, a musical quote that that can kind of crystallize things. And since we uh, succeeded and survived the impossible mission of watching this week's edition of Nitro. Let's go to the Mission Impossible 2 theme song provided by One Limp Biscuit. And let's take a look around, people. <laughs> All the tension in the world today, 
All the little girls filling up the world today. When the good comes to bad, the bad comes to good. But I'm gonna live my life like I should. I know you wanna hate me. I know why you wanna hate me. I know why you wanna hate me. Cause hate is all the world and Vince Russo have seen lately.